Well, with uh, much rejoicing, we uh, who have children have reached the end of the school year. It was the official last day of school, uh, at least in the, the county schools this last Friday, and some of you I know beat us to that moment when we could uh, close our homeschooling books here for, for the, the season. But it made me think about springtime. It made me think about the end of the school year as, as a kid. And I remember in elementary school, one of my favorite things as the, the weather finally warmed up in Illinois is as the, the beautiful spring weather would come is that recess would often become just a massive massive game of tag right kids you might need to remind some of those old people sitting next to you right tag that game where where one child is is touched and becomes it right and then it's their job to chase all the other kids and as soon as they can touch one the person whom they touch becomes it and so there's one child running trying to catch all the others and everyone else is running around in circles trying to 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 frenzy get away from the person who is it but essential to these games becomes a, a, a place right a, a a designated safe zone we would call it home base and for us in our school it was the swing set usually right the poles of the swing set that if you had a hand on the pole then you were safe the person who was it could not touch you right and and even as a kid with seemingly boundless energy you can only run around in circles so many times right up and down the slides over across the soccer field you run and you run but eventually you need a place to stop you need a place to 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 settle you need a place to catch your breath and to figure out who's it even anymore the sheer chaos demands that we need that constant safe place it's a place that that when you're away right when you're being chased by the person who's it you can't wait to get back to because in the midst of chaos it's a constant uh, if you're like me, life in this season might feel a little bit like a, a chaotic game of tag, right? The life, it seems like while we're going nowhere, we're just running around in circles in our own house, right? Doing the same things over and over again because we haven't been able to leave. Yet somehow you feel wearied and exhausted, you feel disoriented, not sure what is, is happening in life. Maybe you're fearful or angry, confused or isolated. Maybe you just don't even know who's it anymore and who you're supposed to avoid. And many more of us feel in some way this about God too. Chaotic, wearisome, anxious. Where are you? What do you doing God in a world where the the New York Times today published a thousand names uh, uh, one one hundredth of the folks who have perished in our country over the last couple of months we wonder what is God doing and yet here on this Sunday this Ascension Sunday we come to this kind of sweet and and simple story 
It's a story that, that even some of the best commentators, the ones who write these great big, you know, thousands of pages kind of commentaries, they struggle to kind of know what to do with because it's, it's, well, it's really kind of ordinary. By this point in the Gospels, we've seen and, and heard so many stories that are just like this one. Jesus coming in and, and miraculously demonstrating his power and his control and his care over the world that uh, here in this place and in this time, it, it seems, well, it seems a little bit ordinary. And we wonder, it says that Jesus has revealed himself, but what exactly has he revealed? I think that if we're reading the story of John rightly, if we've come to this place following his train of thought, I think we see that what is so ordinary about this passage is what is extraordinary. Here, after the, the climatic events of the death and resurrection, still Jesus remains the same. His interaction with his disciples, his control over the, the world and the material universe, his engagement with them has not changed. And if that reality sets in, if that reality uh, gives us a foothold, then we begin very quickly that, to understand that, that, that our safe place, that our home base in the midst of a frenzied and chaotic world, that our home base and our, our safe place in the midst of, of anxiety and weariness comes because we have a constant place. But it's not a constant place, it's a constant person author of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if that's true, if that's true that Jesus does not change, well then that changes everything for how we engage and interact with the world. Let me show it to you. Uh, the first thing that I notice as I read this story the first thing that we see that is, is constant, the thing that we see that is unchanging in Jesus from before his death and resurrection to this moment to now after his death and resurrection is his constant provision. His, his constant ability to provide that which his people, his followers, need. It's been a major, huge theme of Jesus' whole life. He, he bases his, his claim to, to the coming kingdom of God on the fact that the, that the sick will be cared for, right? That the, that the poor will be attended to, that the naked will be clothed, that the hungry will be fed. And even here as we come to this story and it's cast here at the, the Sea of Galilee, kind of like the, uh, what John calls the Sea of Tiberias here. It's the same place. And instantly the nostalgic images from all of the gospels come to our head because this was the place. This was the water where, where Jesus demonstrated his power by calming a storm and walking on water. It is here that, that when Jesus came and recruited Peter, he demonstrated the very same supernatural knowledge and ability to, 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 to place a large school of fish in Peter's nets. It's here, overlooking this sea, that Jesus, when he gave his, his sermon on the mount, says, Do not be anxious about your life. 
what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Your Father knows that you need them all. Who's here, here overlooking this sea that Jesus took two fish and five loaves of bread and broke them apart and, and distributed them to a crowd of 5,000 hungry people, 5,000 people who needed to eat. Jesus is supernatural. Jesus is right on time. Provision was the hallmark of his ministry. And here, here in this nostalgic moment, we realize, well, maybe it's not nostalgia after all. Maybe they're still living in that same moment. You see, the disciples uh, there are there in, in Galilee because presumably the angel in, uh, had told them, go and meet him in Galilee. And so they went, and, and they're waiting there, and Peter comes to the conclusion, I'm going fishing. Now, a lot of people have wondered about this, right? Uh, they wondered, is this him somehow trying to get away from God or the purposes of God? I, I don't think so. I think it's probably a much more normal reality, and that is this, that uh, hiding in a locked room in Jerusalem doesn't pay very well, right? You're not able to, to buy the supplies and the food that you need by hiding in a locked room, and that's what he's been doing uh, for the last few weeks, according to the gospel account. And so here he is in Galilee waiting on Jesus, but he says if we're waiting on Jesus, then perhaps we can go get a good catch, refill the money bags. We'll be able to provide for ourselves. Of course, in the dramatic display, uh, that's not exactly what happens, is it? They by themselves... Uh, were able to catch nothing. All night they fished, but it was not until Jesus comes along to bless their efforts. It's not until Jesus comes along and says, no, cast your net on the, the right side of the boat, that all of a sudden their material and physical needs, their business venture is blessed, and they bring aboard 150 three large fish, the text tells us. It is here in this moment that Peter realizes and recognizes who Jesus is because when he sees the provision of those fish, he knows that his provider was with him, that his provider had not stopped or resigned when he went to the cross, but that his provider was indeed intent on serving him. And so the Sea of Galilee is a nostalgic setting, but it's not a nostalgia that is focused and, and living in the past. It's that, that, that moment when they realize that the nostalgia is not past, but present. That the one who gave still gives. That the one who ruled still rules. And for the, the first readers of John, this is even more the case, right? Because the first readers of, of John would reflect on Jesus not just as a, a resurrected God, as, as he is here, but on what comes next in the story. A God who ascends to the heavenly realms and rules with power, as Josh reminded us here just a little bit ago. 
And so it is, as they look at Jesus, the Jesus who does not change here in his resurrected body, that they are confirmed that the Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father is the same God, the God who is constant in his provision, constant in suppressing evil, constant in building his church, constant in providing for the needs of the destitute, the weak, and the hungry. You see, Jesus does not change in his commitment to provide for his people. And that's an extraordinary fact that changes everything about the way that we live in light of it. Right, if you uh, are a kid, ever since you were itty-bitty toddler, people have been asking you, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? What are you going to do for your job one day? If you're a high school or, or a college student, that refrain has become uh, almost nonstop, right? It's almost like no adult wants to talk to you about anything but what you're going to do for your job one day. Today in this season when, you know, statistically uh, Americans have lost at least 25% of their income, Right, all of a sudden, many of us find ourselves in a new realm of unemployment or underemployment and trying to, to rebrand ourselves. What are we going to do? How are we going to, to make this money back up? But if we understand who Jesus is and we realize the, the, the question that demands priority, the question that demands the first place is not, what am I going to do? But whose am I? It's not what am I going to do, how am I going to provide for myself, but what is my relationship to the one who brings provisions? Because you see what these disciples had confirmed for them in this moment with Jesus is that if you are the Lord's, then you have a God in heaven who provides for what his children need. Now, maybe not at the amount you want, right? Maybe not at the, the time that you want it. Maybe not in the, the way that we want it. Sometimes through miraculous provision, but more often through the ordinary blessings of our labors, through the, the, the generosity which he puts in the hearts of his church, that God provides for his people. If we understand the God's provision, Jesus' desire to provide for you does not change in his death and resurrection, then that changes everything about how we face the fears and anxieties of these uncertain times. But we see here quickly that provision is not the only thing that has not changed in Jesus. It's not just his constant provision, but also his constant care. Right? This might be the, the understatement of the century, right? Uh, Jesus has been through a lot in the last few weeks of this story. Right? Jesus has, has faced uh, the, the, the most traumatic death that m at least my mind can conceive of. Right? Those who, who love him and know him best have all fled and ran and hid. Those who hated him have put him through one of the most excruciating, publicly embarrassing crucifixions, right? Jesus has gone lower than we could ever, than many humans could ever conceive of. 
But then three days later, he is risen from the dead. He is, is exalted to a, a place and a power that no man has, has ever achieved, right? The very history of the world, if, if you believe in the story of the Bible, the very history of the world has been rewrote because of what he has done. And yet, Jesus does not change. But if you've lived long enough, you know that normally trauma changes people, right? You yourself have, have gone through trauma. A dear friend has gone through trauma, and you realize that their relationships are never the same later. That the, the trauma that they experience changes the way that they think in the process. It, it changes the way that they evaluate relationships and what they do with the world. And so too does success, right? Success changes the way people live and work in the world. I'm, I'm reminded of, of an old soccer teammate, right, when I was in high school. Uh, we'll call him Kevin for the day. And he was our best player. He was our, our star player. And uh, I was not our star player. Uh, but so I kind of it was kind of like the best player and the worst player got paired up. I was his backup, right? I played his position as his backup, and we always got along, right? We got along, and 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 we had fun and we laughed because we would be with each other there in drills. He was a a, a friendly guy. That is until. The, the scouts started coming around for him, right? The success as he uh, became a, a better player, as our team performed better and, and won the regionals that year, right? All of a sudden, college scouts came to see him, and the more success he had, the less patience he had for me, <laughs> right? The more success that he had, the less patience he had with my lack of talent, my lack of success. And eventually, that, that the summer between our junior and senior years, he just went ahead and, and moved to a different school, right? He could no longer tolerate our, our, our lowliness, right? Our mediocre success, our, our lack of visibility. He went to the school where he could be seen and noticed. And that's kind of the normal way that success works, right? Like the, the colleague who's been promoted, right? The colleague who, who has gotten the big bonus, they, they start to treat you a little bit differently, right? The friend who, who uh, attained some level of, of popularity in school, right? They treat you differently. But when we come to Jesus, Jesus who has experienced more trauma than any human has ever experienced and more glory than any human has ever experienced has not changed. Here he was, king of the universe, huddled over the charcoal fire like a camp cook. Right? Why was he doing that? Because he knew that his friends would be hungry after coming off a boat fishing. He knew that a, a good, warm breakfast would feed and nourish their souls. He knew that it would bring them comfort, and he knew that it would bring them joy. And so the king of the universe, the king of all glory, the king of kings stooped over a fire to make breakfast. Come and sit with me, he said. 
the teacher who had a few weeks before prior had, had wrapped a towel around himself to kneel and wash his disciples' feet. His death and his resurrection have not changed Jesus. He is still the one who loves and cares and serves his people. In fact, one of the predominant images that we have of Jesus in his current state is that he sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and it is there that he serves as our advocate. Think about that. That it's in heaven above, he appeals to the Father, pleading for our concerns, our desires, our longings. It is because of Jesus and because of how much he cares for us, how much he feels our pains and our sorrows, that we can pray to God so freely, that we can pray to God so, so boldly. It is because of his position and because of his care that he invites us, pray whatever you would like. Many of us are tired from running around in circles. And the weariness of this normal life has us feeling worthless, like we're in some rat race, like what we uh, are doing makes no difference except for to wear us out. But here John invites us to come back, to come back here to, to, to home base, to come back here to the constant that is Jesus. Because Jesus does not change in his desire to care for you. And that reality can make all the difference. The third and final thing I want to point out in the way that Jesus interacts with his disciples here is his constant grace. I want to remind you that this was not just like a, a family reunion that was held on, on neutral ground. No, this this interaction, this meeting of Jesus and his disciples occurred with a massive giant elephant in the room. And the elephant was this. Everybody but Jesus had abandoned him in his darkest hour. Everybody but Jesus had turned coat and, and fled. Everybody but Jesus had betrayed his trust and his care. And I don't know if you, I don't know about you, but in those moments when I've ever had to, to come face to face with somebody that I've betrayed trust with, right, the person who, who I talked behind their back and, and they heard about it, right, that sort of thing. And when you come to that moment when you have to look them face to face in the eye, you dread that moment, right? You dread that moment of accountability. Now, some of you, like, stiffen up and, and fight even harder. Some of you get weak knees and shaking un, under the, the tension of that moment. But however you deal with conflict, you are pretty clear that you would rather get away. You would rather not face the fact that you have failed. You would rather not face the fact that you have betrayed their trust. But what I want you to see here is that the people who knew Jesus the best, Peter especially, when he sees Jesus, when he sees Jesus and he knows what he has done, he knows the way that he betrayed Jesus three times. He wept in the garden and as Jesus' trials were going on because of his 
failure. And yet when he sees Jesus, he doesn't hide down below deck on the boat. Jesus, Paul, I mean, I'm sorry, Peter, that's the one. Peter, because he knew who Jesus was, because he knew of the constant grace that Jesus poured out, the second he recognizes it's Jesus, he can't even wait for the boat to pull up to the shore. He dives overboard and swims to get to Jesus as fast as he possibly can. Because what Peter knows about Jesus, what Peter knows is still true about Jesus, is that he is, as he always has been, like his father, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. You see, Jesus is not like the rest of the world. The rest of the world, when you betray them, when you hurt them, they hurt you back. Back when when Whitney and I lived in Kentucky, I worked uh, in an elementary school for a season. And I've told this story before, but I I think it's a story that's worth repeating. And, And specifically... I basically became a, a functional uh, one-on-one aide with one particular young man. We'll call him, we'll call him Evan. And Evan was, uh, over the time I knew him, a kindergartner, a first grader, a second grader. And, and Evan had a lot of problems in life. And Evan needed emotional behavior supports. And so that's where I came in. I was the one to, to help him navigate the, 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 the stresses and the misbehaviors of a day. And Evan was maybe unlike most first graders that you ever know. Evan has thrown everything that you could possibly do, a first grader could possibly do to an adult, like Evan had done to me, right? Like he kicked me, he bit me, he cursed at me daily, he spit at me, right? There was even a few times he tried to sneak up behind me with thumbtacks and stab me. One day after after one of his his really big nasty breakouts anger and 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 truly frightening kinds of behaviors he calmed down and and as we were talking i said this to him i said i said evan you know i forgive you and he said to me what does that mean and i you know, like when you're talking to a kid and they ask you a question and you're like, uh, trying to find the words, right? And I was like, finally, I was like, well, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that even though you hurt me, I'm not going to try and hurt you back. Even though you hurt me, I'm not going to try and hurt you back. And his response to me was, that's not right. I was like, well, what do you mean? He said, that's not right. If I hurt you, you're supposed to hurt me back. You see, Evan knew the ways of the world and was more honest about the ways of the world than most adults will ever be. When you betray someone's trust, when you hurt someone, it is expected, it is normal that they would change in their posture towards you. That they would hold it against you, that they they would demand some sort of, of, of repayment That they would uh, make you sit in silence and re-earn their trust. That's the normal way of the world, but that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus is the one whom you can jump and swim to, especially because you have betrayed him. 
because his posture towards us has always been and will always be grace. And yet some of us approach Jesus like Evan approached me, like the philosophy, the way he reigns and, and rules in the world, the way he thinks about the world is to get even and to get back at us. And so many of us in this moment are dealing with tremendous guilt and, and we are afraid of Jesus. We're afraid that God and Jesus is, is waiting to whack us up over the head, right? Or to whip our behind, to give us a taste of our own medicine. We think of Jesus like this, uh, you know, God who is ready to, to strike us down for our irreverence or strike us down for our misdeeds at any moment, we often conceive of the Christian message as if it's like some sort of sneaky way that we slide around the wrath that God really wants to give us, but through this like sneaky get out of jail free card that is Jesus's death. But the story of scripture has always been, and the story of Jesus in particular is always that one of the most consistent, constant things, the kinds of things that you can rely on, take to the bank is that God's disposition towards you is gracious because of Jesus. So you don't need to hide in the bottom of the boat. Dive in, jump overboard, and swim to him because his posture of grace does not change towards you. And so we come to this text that is extraordinary simply because it is so ordinary. That the traumatic changes that Jesus has, has gone through have not changed him. They've not changed his, his provision. They've not changed his care. They've not changed his commitment to show us grace. And while I think of this nostalgic kind of, of, of epilogue, I, I think of uh, a little clip that some of you will know from the the this TV series, The Office, right, in the finale. And perhaps the most nostalgic character in the whole scene is, is Andy Bernard, right? And we've watched Andy as he has, has longed for years to go back to his alma mater, right, to go back to the good old days. And here at the series finale, when, when all of the characters, Jim and Pam, have moved on, Michael has moved on, Dwight Right, Everyone has moved on to, to new and, and sometimes better, sometimes just different things. But Andy reflects on his time working at the, the office. And he says, I wish there was a way to know when you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. I wish that there was a way to know that you're in the good old days, that things are the way that they're supposed to be, that, that, that the ordinary struggles, the ordinary frustrations of the normal grit and grind of life are what you will one day look back on and say, that was the good old days. And I think that's precisely what John is trying to tell us. John is trying to tell us that Jesus does not change. And because that's the reality, we live in the good old days right now. The good old days where Jesus, despite the mundaneness of life as we feel, despite the difficulty of life we feel, despite our desire to, to escape at times, Jesus provides a constant safe place. Jesus provides a constant provision. 
for his children. He provides a, a constant care and loving kindness towards us. He provides a constant and unrelenting and unqualified grace and forgiveness towards us. You see, Jesus does not change. And if we get that reality, if we understand the implications of the, that reality, it will change everything else about how we experience the world. Pray with me. God, we gather and we often confess that we don't know what to make of our lives. And we don't know what to make of our lives in this moment and in this time. And yet you are the God who says you are unchanging. That your constant and consistent disposition towards us is love. Lord, I pray that we would see how that is true in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would stake our hope on that truth in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.